0: All right, we come now this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. And I hope that excites you today that we get the privilege to open God's Word and say what God says, hear what God says, and respond. Uh, this is an incredible privilege that we have every single week, and we need God's help. And so I want to invite you this morning to turn to Matthew 13. And we're going to call on the name of the Lord together. And we're going to ask for the Lord's help as we open his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. Lord, and we acknowledge and we call upon you as the fountain of everything good. And Lord, we confess our need for you. Lord, we need you. Jesus, you tell us in your word that we can't do anything apart from you. You're the vine, we're the branches, Lord. And so we ask for grace today. We ask for sanctifying grace that makes us more like you, Lord Jesus. Sanctify us, make us holy. God, we pray that you would deal with us today at a deep level, Lord, at the level of the heart. Not just external conformity, but real Christ-likeness, real holiness. Lord, sanctify us by your word. God, we ask for saving grace, Lord, in your house today, that you would exalt your holy name, that you would exalt the power of your word. You're the fountain, Lord, and we need you, God. God, come, Lord, draw near to us and bless us, God, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to begin our time this morning by reading God's word together And I want to remind you before we do this that this is the most important part of the next hour when we read God's word together. Because when we read God's word, that's the only words you're about to hear that are without error, that come from the mouth of God, that are the very words of the living God. All scripture is breathed out by God. So let's read God's word with reverence this morning and with faith and with uh, reminded that this is the very power of God at work In his church. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Verse 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. We're going to give attention to this as a local church together. I want you to notice twice in our passage that Matthew uses the word hometown, once in verse 54, again in verse 57. And what Matthew recounts for us in our passage today is a homecoming of sorts. Jesus is returning to his hometown. And we know from the Gospels that this is Nazareth. He's coming back to the, to the town where he grew up. Now, homecomings are supposed to be joyous occasions. I know they're not always that, but they're supposed to be that. They remind us of our roots. Uh, whether it 's a family reunion or home for the holidays or a class reunion there 's a sense of nostalgia about it that this is where I grew up. This is how the Lord cared for me in, in, in this early season of my life and small towns this is especially the case okay and you small town brothers and sisters, you know what I mean okay those small towns where everybody knows. Everybody, this sense of nostalgia, this, this sense of roots, it runs even deeper. And Nazareth was a very small town. It was a very obscure town in Israel. And so this small town homecoming that Jesus, you know, that we're about to unpack together, it would have been very newsworthy because something that we need to understand that precedes this homecoming is by this time in Jesus' ministry, he had become very famous in Israel. Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of heaven. He had been announcing himself to be the king. He had been preaching uh, repentance and faith as the way to enter into this heavenly kingdom. And he wasn't just preaching it, he was demonstrating it. He was performing signs of the kingdom of heaven. He was demonstrating the power of the kingdom of heaven. And word was getting out. In fact, the home base of his ministry in Galilee was a village called Capernaum, which was 25 miles away from Nazareth, just a a short distance away. And word had gotten around about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the very first verse of the next chapter, we hear about the fame of Jesus Making its way to Herod Antipas. The very ruler of Galilee. And so word is getting out. And then think of all the things we have coming together in our passage. We got this famous hometown boy coming back for this homecoming. A famous resident. If there were newspapers in Nazareth. The headline would have sounded something like this. Local Nazarene. Hits it big in Galilee. Carpenter turned rabbi coming home next week. Sure to be a synagogue sensation. In other words, understand. You know, understand the context here. With all the anticipation, here's what we would expect. Okay? Unless we'd already read the passage. We would expect that the Nazarenes would have been the ones who To accept Jesus, okay, that's what we would expect. Homescomings are supposed to be joyous occasions. That's not what they always are. We would expect that these would have been the Israelites who would who would have accepted Jesus as one of their very own. That they would be proud that the Messiah would be raised up from this nowhere town, Nazareth. That they would be, you know, at least the ones in Israel that would stand in this corner. And, and and fall at his feet and stand in his corner and encourage him to pursue the mission that his father had given him. That's what we would expect. Why would we expect that? They knew him, they knew Jesus. He had spent over two decades in this small town, in this village. He was a man of proven character in their midst. This is not like some you know, uh, uh, drive-in, drive-out crusade preaching where this preacher comes in. You don't know anything about his character. You don't know anything about his life. This is the hometown boy. This is, the, this is Jesus of Nazareth. They've seen him. They know him. His character was demonstrated in their midst for over two decades. Surely they would receive him. That's the expectation. But our passage says that the Nazarenes rejected Jesus. Verse 57 says they took offense at our Lord. They were offended at Jesus. They were offended at his message. They were offended at the claims that he was making about himself. I mean, it's all fun and games until someone says that they're the king of heaven, that they are the king of the kingdom of heaven. And then all of a sudden it forces you to a crisis. How will you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't just call him a good old hometown boy. He's announcing himself to be God in the flesh. And they were offended at Jesus, The things that Jesus was announcing in his teaching, the claims that Jesus was making about himself, it didn't seem to match what these Nazarenes knew about Jesus. Now, anointed preaching, and by that I don't mean weird charismatic preaching, I mean anointed preaching when the Spirit of God bears witness to his word. When church leaders say what God says, trusting God to work in the church, one of the things that happens, a tendency, is that anointed preaching has a tendency to get up under the skin. Okay? It's hard to ignore. It's not just like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, they said this. It's like, can you believe he said that? Okay? Can you believe he gets under your skin if you're not willing to receive it? It irritates the flesh and so this was certainly the case in nazareth that the lord jesus christ luke chapter 4 had been anointed by the holy spirit to preach the gospel the message of the kingdom to the poor and their response this would have been the conversation at cracker barrel after the sermon okay it wasn't man can you believe this this was awesome It sounded like this, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? That's what's going on here. Okay. Mark's version calls Jesus a carpenter. Mark's version of this same story says, Is this not the carpenter? Matthew's version says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Joseph was the earthly father of Jesus. And he was the carpenter in Nazareth. And then as we read uh, the Gospels, we find, you know, that Joseph just falls away. Not much is said about him after the birth narrative of Christ. And most likely what happens is that Joseph dies in Jesus's uh, late childhood or early teenage years. And the Lord Jesus Christ takes on the vocation of his earthly father. And I say earthly father, we need to put that in quotes because we understand that the Lord Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Okay. He was born of a virgin. He was he was the incarnate God from heaven. Earthly Father in the sense that Joseph is the one who took him in as his own son. And Jesus became a carpenter just like Joseph was a carpenter in Nazareth. And this word, it's not a derogatory thing. Nothing wrong with being a carpenter. Okay? This word is referring to a skilled laborer, okay? A tradesman, a builder. Could mean working with wood, it could also mean working with mud bricks and building stuff. So think construction worker, okay? Is this not the carpenter's son? This is how they saw Jesus. Okay? Not as the Messiah. They didn't see anything more when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ in front of them than the humble, lowly carpenter's son and then in verse 55 and 56 they reference his family okay they reference his family Is not he the son of mary he, these are his brothers are not his sisters here with us this is you know an interesting thing about verse 56 is this is the only place in the bible where we learn that our lord had sisters i mean that's just awesome Okay, like that, like that's just a little side road. It's not the main point of the passage, but it's there. Jesus has sisters, and they're saying, listen, we hear what you're saying. The sermon's awesome. Okay? And the power of God is with you. But we also hear these claims that you're making about yourself. And the problem is this: we know your family. We know where you come from. Your brothers are right here, your sisters are right here. And so these are comments that are meant to put the Lord Jesus, so to speak, in his place. They're trying to humble, you know, uh, the Lord Jesus. That that Don't forget where you come from. Your sisters, your brothers, your mama, and you're the carpenter's son. Our passage can be summed up in verse 57. What's this passage about? Well, here's the main point. Jesus was a prophet without honor in his hometown. A prophet without honor... In his hometown. And I want us to consider four questions this morning from this passage. We'll work our way through this passage answering these four questions. Number one, who rejected Jesus Christ? Number two, why did they reject him? Number three, what does this rejection reveal about our Lord? And number four, how does Jesus respond to being rejected? And we'll start with that first question. And I want us to just pause right here and just take it in and remember. According to this passage, who was it that rejected Jesus? And this passage says it twice. His hometown. Nazareth. The Nazarenes rejected Jesus. Now. I want you to understand how big of a deal that really is. okay? And and we're going to do that by remembering just how much of a privilege the the Nazarites had. Those who lived in Nazareth. And so as we read the gospel, several things fall into place. Jesus is born, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Shortly after his birth, because of this murderous king, King Herod, the Lord Jesus is forced to to flee to Egypt as a refugee, as a young boy, spends several years in Egypt, and then is brought back, by revelation, to the land of Israel. And as a young boy, his family settles in Nazareth. In other words, I want you to understand that Nazareth is the only town on planet earth that got to see God incarnate grow up in their midst. No other town got to see what they saw. They were the only ones in the history of the world that got to see a perfect human being Listen, passing through all the stages of human development. What does holiness look like in a 5-year-old, in an 8-year-old, in an 11-year-old, in an 18-year-old, in a 25-year-old? Ask Nazareth. Because they saw it. They're the only ones on planet Earth that saw it. Because it happened right in their midst. Luke chapter 2 says it this way, verse 39. And when they, Jesus' family, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. To their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew. And became strong. Filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Where did that happen? Happened in Nazareth. Where the Spirit of God was resting upon this holy child. And he grows into this holy man. Later in Luke chapter 2. He says it this way. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom. And in stature and in favor with God and man. So know this about your Lord. He increased in stature. That's that's, he's going through the normal stages of human development. And as he's increasing in stature, the Bible says he's increasing with wisdom. The spirit of Yahweh is upon him. And not only is he increasing with wisdom, he's growing in favor with God. This is a holy child who's becoming a holy man. And here's the thing that I want to make sure you understand. Not only is he growing in favor with God, the Bible says he's also growing in favor with man. Where did that happen? Where did the Lord Jesus grow in favor with man? Not in Tel Aviv, not in northern Israel, not in southern Israel. He grew in favor with man with those who were around him. This happened in Nazareth. In other words, he was a special citizen. He he was a favored son. He was a well thought of man in this small town. In other words, I want you to understand, you know, what would have happened. They would have seen our Lord Jesus in the synagogue. Can you imagine that? I mean, really, can you imagine that? That they would have laid eyes on the incarnate son of God, lift his hands in the synagogue and bless the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his might. They would have seen a sinless man pray, a sinless man praise God in their midst, a sinless man receive the Torah and the teaching of the Lord his God. They knew him. It happened in their midst. They would have seen Jesus in the marketplace. They would have seen Him on the streets. They would have seen Him playing with His friends. They would have seen Him at funerals. They would have seen Him at weddings. They would have seen Him in His trade. Doing all things to the glory of His Father. In other words, they would have seen a sinless man grow up right under their nose. That's the privilege of Nazareth. Nobody else in all the world could see what they saw. But when the time for decision came, this passage tells us that they saw nothing beyond the ordinary in Jesus. Sure, he was pious. Sure, he loved God. Sure, he knew the word. But let's not get carried away here. He's saying he's the Son of God. And they took offense at him. Now, as I studied this, I thought about how, you know, this is such a good reminder to us of the nature of the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, it really is mind-blowing that the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is kind of like several weeks ago when we see that even his own family, didn't receive our Lord until later in his ministry. And it's mind-blowing in the sense of how in the world could you miss it? How in the world could you miss it? In your own family, right in front of your face, in your own town, right in front of your face, day after day, month after month, year after year, decades, right in front of you. And it tells us something really important about the nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and I say very important because if you don't know what you're looking for you'll miss it you will miss it when Jesus walked this earth his glory was veiled it was veiled that's the language of Philippians 2 he emptied himself his glory was veiled in other words the only way to perceive his glory during this period was by faith you couldn't see it with your eyes it's amazing that God literally dwelt in our midst. He was, he was Emmanuel, God with us. But you couldn't see it with your eyes. The only way to perceive His glory was to trust the Word of God by faith. Whether that was trusting the words of the prophets in the Old Testament or trusting the Lord Jesus himself as he proclaimed the kingdom or trusting the apostles that come after Jesus or even today the church that preaches in his name. The only way to perceive the glory of Christ in this age is by faith. You can't see it with your eyes. In other words, you could say it this way Isn't it interesting? Isn't it important that we understand that he did not come and dwell in our midst with sunbeams radiating from his face and, and, and hurricanes coming out of his mouth when he speaks? He came in lowly form, he came in the form of a servant. In fact, he came in a form so lowly that he could have grown up in your hometown and you not even know it. you got to know what you're looking for or you'll miss it. They were totally blind that this carpenter's son was also the uncreated son of his father in heaven. They knew he was Joseph's son. They didn't know he was the son of God in human flesh they were blind to the fact that this carpenter was also a prophet he stood in their midst but he also stood in the divine counsel of Yahweh he stood in the very presence of God he heard the words of God he spoke what his father said he was God's prophet he was the prophet of all prophets As God's prophet, he enjoyed perfect and unbroken communion with his Father who was in heaven. I don't want you to miss this claim in our passage that Jesus is claiming to be a prophet. Because sometimes the lowliness of Jesus can be explained in such a way that he would never make grandiose claims about himself. Man, he's so humble, he would never say, you know, uh, these exalted things about himself. Well, listen... He he claims to be a prophet. That's wrong. That's a distortion of the lowliness, the humility of Jesus. He is God's prophet. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us he's God's final sermon to humanity. In times past, God spoke to the prophets of old. But in the last days, the Lord has spoken to us in, through, and by his son, Jesus. He's the prophet of all prophets. He's the very word of God. He only says what the Father says. And this is just the tip of the iceberg about the claims that Jesus makes about himself. I mean, it really is, because as we continue reading the Gospels, Jesus, I mean, he just takes it up a level and then another level and another level. Think about John's Gospel in John 14. Jesus says, you know, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's not a lowly, you know, humble, never would say anything grandiose. Savior. He's saying, I'm the only way to God. And then in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus looks at his enemies and he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And he proclaims himself to be pre-existent. He takes the very name of Yahweh. And we're going to see in John, John 5, at the end of our time, that the Lord Jesus even says that all judgment on the final day will be given to him. He is God's prophet now this passage is crystal clear as to why they rejected Jesus so that's who rejected him the Nazarenes now we want to focus on why and I want you to look at verse 58 we're told in verse 58 that it was because of their unbelief and this is really important One of the lowest towns in Israel, and the Bible doesn't say, it's because they're dumb. okay, Or because they didn't know enough. Or they didn't have enough information. Or they weren't smart enough. The Bible tells us why they rejected Jesus is they didn't believe. In other words, they had a revelation from God and they rejected that revelation. It was because of unbelief that they rejected Jesus. You see, the Nazarites, they didn't know Jesus to be a preacher. That was new. The Bible says it wasn't until 30 years old that Jesus began his ministry. When he was baptized, when he was anointed by the Spirit, when he was sent by the Father to preach the gospel to the poor. They didn't know him as a preacher. In other words, those decades that Jesus lived in Nazareth, he wasn't the the town rabbi. That wasn't his calling. His time was not yet. They knew him as The carpenter's son. But in the fullness of time. God called him out. God called him into this mission. And he began to preach. He began to announce the kingdom. It was new revelation. All of a sudden. This hometown one. Became the most famous preacher in Israel. There was new revelation right before them. They were forced to deal with it. And this passage tells us that they rejected it. They rejected it. Sometimes we have really lo- wrong ideas about what's wrong with mankind and what we really need. And one of those ideas is that, man, what's wrong with mankind and what we really need is education. Okay? And, and we're just, you know, this, these neutral vacuums, this blank slate. And, man, if we can just get enough information inside the, the head of these people, man, they'll make good decisions. And the Bible tells us that there's something more fundamentally wrong with us okay, than just not having information. We have, by nature, evil hearts of unbelief. Do you know that about yourself? It is the thing more than everything else about you that needs to be reformed, transformed, and made new. Is that old, unbelieving heart needs to be taken out, and we need a heart of flesh. That heart of stone's got to go. We need a heart of flesh. And that's what it means to become a Christian. They rejected the Lord Jesus because of unbelief. And unbelief is serious business. Unbelief caused them to dishonor God's prophet in his own hometown. Now think about that. To honor Jesus as a prophet would have been to receive him as a messenger of God. But they dishonored God's prophet, which means that they treated Jesus as a pretender. They didn't believe he was from God. They didn't believe that he was a messenger from the Lord. And so that heart of unbelief will cause you to dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. To reject him. We'll come back to that as we close. Next question, what does this rejection in Nazareth reveal about Jesus? And I want to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles. Isaiah 53. And let's read this verse together. Isaiah 53.3 says this. This is a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So this rejection in Nazareth is actually fulfilling prophecies, ancient promises from the prophets about the Messiah. And it's showing us who is Jesus. He's a man of sorrows. Jesus is a man of sorrows rejected by men. Sometimes we can get the wrong idea about the suffering of Jesus, that Jesus' suffering is located, we locate it only at the cross, you know, like uh, the suffering of the cross, the hours before and then on the cross. And no doubt Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered gloriously. He suffered obediently. He suffered sacrificially. He suffered as our substitute on the cross. Not taken away from that at all. But that's not the only place Jesus suffered. It wasn't only only at the end of his life that he suffered. The Bible actually portrays the whole life of Jesus Christ as a life of suffering. And I want you to know that about your Lord. In other words, if you were to ask this question, where in the Bible... Or or where does the Bible tell us that the suffering of Jesus begins? And the answer is at the very moment of his incarnation. At the very moment of his incarnation. The language of Philippians chapter 2 tells us that when this one who was in the form of God took the form of a servant, the Bible says he humiliated himself. In other words, there was this great condescension that swallows up every other stooping down, every other condescension that you've ever known is that He left this high and holy place and He came to dwell among us in the form of God, equality with God now, the form of a servant, humiliation when Jesus became incarnate. And then we see this play out all throughout The Gospels, all throughout his life, that this one who was the King of heaven, when he's born, it's not like planet Earth is throwing this huge party that the King is here, the King is here. He's born, and who's there? Shepherds. And where do they lay him? In a cattle stall, in a manger. There's no place. You know, in Bethlehem to even lay the head of the savior of the world. He's a he's the lowly one. His whole earthly existence is lowliness and suffering. Even what we mentioned before. I mean, think about this. Why in the world is the high king of heaven having to flee this weak you know, uh, uh, weak King Herod and having to become a refugee baby in Egypt, why in the world is he volunteering for this? And then even in our passage, why in the world is the Savior of the world, why would he sign up to be rejected by his own hometown? I want you to see this. This is what he volunteered for. It's not just... A little suffering, or great suffering at the end of his life. His whole life was a humiliation. A stooping down, a becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was rejected by men. And I want you to understand this. When he was rejected by men, he was rejected as a man. I don't want you to miss the human side of this. This was suffering for Jesus. This was painful for the man Christ Jesus. Not painful because he was weak. Painful because he loved them. I mean, ask yourself this. Do you love the people you go to church with? I mean, really, do you? And then think about this. If, if you were in this church for two decades, would you love the people that you go to church with? And the answer is obviously yes. But here's the thing. Jesus loved them without sin. Jesus loved them to the fullest that anybody could ever love. Selflessly, sacrificially. The ones, he knew their name. He grew up in their midst and he preached the gospel. He announced himself as king. And listen, go back and read this this afternoon. Luke's version of this story tells us that they were so angry That they wanted to murder Jesus, that they pushed him out of the synagogue and they were trying to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. Imagine that. Imagine that suffering as the man, Christ Jesus, that this is my hometown, these are the ones I love, and they're trying to throw me off the cliff. Nobody knows loneliness and suffering like Jesus knew loneliness and suffering. He's a man of sorrows. The Lord Jesus is acquainted with grief. And so I don't want us to miss the suffering of Christ in this passage. John 1 says it this way. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. That's who Jesus is. He was rejected by men. And we esteemed him not. Every single one of us. Do you understand that that there was a point of time in your life and you may still be there where you esteemed him not the holy one of God a man of suffering acquainted with grief why did Jesus subject himself to treatment like this and I want to I want to submit to you that the Bible answers this in several different ways. You could say one one way you could answer this is to fulfill prophecy. In other words, why would Jesus volunteer for this? Isaiah 53 says he's going to be a man of sorrows. And one of the things that we keep seeing about the life of Christ in Matthew's gospel is he's a scripture fulfiller. Remember back in Matthew chapter 2 especially, it's like this thing happened in Jesus' life to fulfill what the prophet said. And so that's what's going on in our passage. His whole life is filling up these ancient prophe- prophecies. He submitted to this to fulfill the scriptures. You could also say he submitted to this to show himself to be blameless. Blameless. One of the things that the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's the spotless lamb. In other words he's the fulfillment. Of all those Old Testament sacrifices. Those unblemished sacrifices. And the picture is that for God to forgive sin. We need a substitute but not just any substitute. A flawless perfect unblemished substitute. And his whole life of obedience is. Is manifesting that he is that unblemished lamb. He's the righteous one. Here's the thing. The obedience of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. It's not like he was perfect in a vacuum. In some kind of heavenly Mayberry. You know with no real temptation. The Bible says that his righteousness was demonstrated in a sin soaked world. Of haters of God. Now think about that. So the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a tested righteousness. He has a righteousness that he suffered for. And it's shown forth in the midst of a world of sin. 1 Peter 2 says it this way. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what did he do? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. says, You could say the Lord Jesus submitted to this rejection to show how righteous he really was. You could also say it this way. He submitted to this rejection to identify with the people of God. This is sweet. There's is a sweet gospel reminder, a sweet gospel promise. The, the book of Hebrews just beats this drum over and over again. That the suffering of Jesus, listen, qualifies Him not only to be the spotless Lamb, listen, but to be the great, compassionate High Priest that can sympathize with the weaknesses of His people. That's who our Lord is, Hebrews 4. Chapter 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What should that make us do? Keep reading. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, I hope that's an encouragement to you today. That when you come to the throne of grace, one of the things that God's word would have you to remember is that king who is seated on that throne is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. In other words, there is no one in any corner of this creation that can sympathize and identify with us more than our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is glorious stuff. This is glorious knowledge about Jesus. This glimpse of his rejection. This glimpse of the lowliness of Christ that would even subject himself to being rejected by men. And I want you today to be reminded of his patience and his gentleness and his lowliness. And I want you to be reminded this morning of his great love for sinners. In other words, this story could have ended and Nazareth and Nazareth rejected the hometown Messiah and he smoked them all. Could have ended that way, but it didn't. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But we have a demonstration in this passage of the patience of. Of our Lord Jesus. And even his love for his enemies. And his resolve to lay down his life for men and women. Just like these Nazarites. And I hope you know this about the gospel. Later on in Matthew's gospel. The Lord Jesus will lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. In Romans chapter 5. The apostle Paul tells us. That this sacrifice is a demonstration of the love of God of what Jesus did on the cross. And listen, he tells us very clearly Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that when God demonstrated his love for us in Jesus Christ, it's not like Jesus died for his allies. Do you understand that? It's not like he loved his allies. So for God so loved his allies that he gave his only son. That's not the gospel. The Bible says that the love of God was demonstrated and that the life of Christ was was given up as a sacrifice, listen, for his enemies. For those who were rebellious toward him. Those who rejected him, just like these Nazarites right here, that that the Lord Jesus would lead the, the highest throne of heaven, condescend down in the form of a servant. And then be rejected by men. Behold the patience, the mercy, the love of Christ. That he would even lay down his life for his enemies. Just like these Nazarites. That grace, that that love, that tenderness, that lowliness. That ought to make you want to give your whole life to Jesus. That ought to remind you that no one has ever loved you like Christ. No one has ever loved you like the Lord Jesus. It's love from another world. it's supernatural in origin. Last question this morning is how does Jesus respond to those who rejected him? And I want to cover this in two speeds okay I want to, I want to look at the immediate response which is in this passage and then I want us to look at the eternal response which is in other passages in the Bible. How does Jesus respond to those who reject him? Look at verse 58. What is the immediate response of Jesus Christ? Verse 58 tells us that he does nothing. They reject him. Luke's version says they even try to kill him. And the Lord Jesus does nothing. He doesn't do any mighty miracles. There's no retribution here. There's no reviling back. He does nothing. Why no mighty works? Because miracles don't create faith. You need to know that as a Christian. Miracles do not create faith. They only confirm faith. I used to think so wrongly about this. Man, if God would just do this thing, man, then we would believe. Romans 10 says this about faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so listen... If you are here today and you reject the word of God, there are no amount of miracles in all of heaven that can save you. The only thing that can create faith is the word and the spirit of God. Miracles only confirm faith. They cannot create it. You will be saved or lost, not on the basis of how many miracles you've seen. And rejected, you will be saved or lost on the basis of how you have responded to the Word of God. And man, feel that. All you have to do to be judged by God forever is hear His Word and reject it. You don't have to kill anybody, you never have to rob a bank. All you have to do is hear a testimony, God speaking through His Word from another world and say, nah. An evil heart of unbelief. The immediate response of Christ is to do nothing. As we read the Gospels and even Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 25 gives us this picture of the final judgment. That all nations will be gathered before the Nazarite. The man from Galilee. Think about how amazing that is. That when we stand before God in judgment. We will stand before the glorified God-man, Jesus Christ. John 5 tells us that the Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. That means your eternal destiny will be determined by how you respond to the Lord Jesus. Which means that there is coming a day when those in Nazareth who tried to throw him off a cliff, they'll have to face him in judgment. Think about that. Think about the privilege they had. Think about the response. And the one thing that you can bet that they will never say in that day is this. Is this not the carpenter's son? You understand there's coming a day where all this veil is ripped off and things get really clear really fast. And the Bible says every eye will see him. Glorified, not in lowly form, but with eyes like a flame of fire, with a voice like the sound of many waters. Philippians 2 tells us that this humiliation and condescension will be gloriously reversed. And God will, you know, uh, give him the name that is above every name. Highly exalt the Lord Jesus. And, there, and there's coming that day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have these two speeds of the response of Christ. Christ patiently endures in this age. Mocking and even rejection. But the same Bible that shows us the tenderness of Christ. And the patience of Christ. Also warns us that in the age of, to come. That will not be the case. That he will judge the world. In a terrifying An eternal judgment in the age to come. And here's the thing. That gap between the immediate response and the eternal response is mercy for us. Do you understand that? It is mercy for us. That God gives us a chance to repent. That God is patient and long-suffering with sinners. Not wishing that any perish. He's patient with us that we would be brought to repentance. This age is the time to get right with God. The New Testament says this about this age, that today is the day of salvation. I mean, is this not good news? What does that mean? That means that we have a promise from God that in this age right now, if you go to Christ, he will never cast you out. That is a glorious promise. To seek the Lord while He may be found. And then that warning stands that there's going to come a day when the invitation is revoked and there's no more time to repent. This age is an age to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the announcement of the gospel. And I want to exhort you today to resolve to deal with this unbelief in your heart. I want us to pull back the veil for just a minute about this sin that we would see how wicked it truly is. Unbelief is not a small sin. Unbelief will cause you to dishonor God. It will cause you to dishonor God's prophets. It it will keep you from Jesus. That's the worst thing about it. I mean, think about what faith does. Faith is how we come to Christ. Unbelief keeps us from Jesus. Faith is, is how we see the glory of Christ, the preciousness of our Lord. But unbelief is how we look at Jesus and we say, man, what's for lunch? Nothing special about Him. Just the carpenter. Just the church thing. Unbelief will cause us to see no form or beauty that we should behold Him. No preciousness in the Son of God. No glory. Unbelief will drag you to hell. Unbelief calls God a liar. God speaks from heaven through His Word. Unbelief says, you're a liar. I'm smarter than you are. I know better than you know. The only thing you have to do to be judged by God is to refuse to believe God's Word. And I want to mention something that's becoming, you know, uh, glamorous, you could say, in our culture is, is, is skepticism. Like, man, it is this glamorous thing to, you know, constantly be searching for the truth, but never to land somewhere and plant your feet down on the truth and say, i searched for it. Then I found it. I'm not searching anymore. And there's this weird glorified you know, uh, skepticism of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, there's some things about Christianity that, that I like, but there's some things that I'm just not uh, sure about. Or you can hear it this way, this evil heart of unbelief that says, you know, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but man, I'm, I'm not sure about you know, this Bible thing. You know, I'm not sure, like I believe in Jesus, but, but you, I mean, everybody knows the Bible has errors in it. I mean, think about, think about that. Think about what you're saying. It's like saying, Jesus, I believe in you, but your father's a liar. He can't even speak truth through through his word. Jesus, I believe in you, but look how weak your father is. He can't even purify his word from error. It's evil. Nothing glamorous about it. It's evil. It's wicked. Not to trust the word of God is evil. Not to take God at his word is evil. And to take God at his word, it glorifies him. It glorifies him as trustworthy. The one who can never lie. And so I want us to note from this passage that it was their familiarity with Jesus that caused them to stumble. And I think there's a special warning here for church gatherings just like this. And I'll tell you why. Think of the warning... That this should be for us in the church. What are we familiar with? Nazareth was familiar with Jesus. Church people are familiar with God's son. God's gospel. God's word. God's servant. God's church. God's people. It's all around us. It is all around you. And think of the warning in this passage. That it can be all around you. You can be so familiar with something and miss it. Right in Your myths. So note well how dangerous it is to become familiar with holy things. This is not common. What's all around you, there's nothing common about it, it's supernatural. Be very warned when you begin to handle and treat holy things as though they were common. And ordinary. This is the familiarity. That led them to despise the son of God. Right in their midst. And I'll give you this to think about. You can test me on this. We can talk about it later. Maybe the one place. In all the world. That's worse. Than rejecting Christ. In Nazareth. Is rejecting Jesus. Jesus. In his church. His holy temple. Think about this. Just as it would have been better. To be a sodomite. Who never heard the gospel. Than it would have been to be. In a synagogue in Nazareth. And hear the gospel and reject it. It would be better. For you to be. A mosque going Allah, worshiping Muslim in Saudi Arabia that never hears the name of Jesus than to be right here, right now in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ and reject him. I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of how responsible we are to respond to the revelation that we have. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's better to grow up with a Muslim background than a Christian background. It's a privilege to be in the midst of holy things. But it's a privilege not to be squandered. It's a privilege that carries this tremendous responsibility. And I want to exhort us this morning. With these holy things all around us. Run to Jesus with faith. Ask the Lord to hold you fast. To keep you fast. Until the very end. And finally, brothers and sisters, one more reminder here. Be prepared to suffer. Why do we think so often that we're going to get better treatment in this world than Jesus got? Why is it so easy for our minds to go there so quickly to expect better treatment in this world than Jesus? The Bible says that our Lord was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And there's this principle running all through the Gospels that as goes the Master, so go His servants. Matthew chapter 10 says it this way, If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? We need to be prepared to suffer for his namesake and follow in the path of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we lift up our souls to you today. God, and we pray that you would bless us, Lord. We pray that you would cancel anything untrue and unhelpful that was said today, and that You would cause the things that are true to dwell richly in our hearts, Lord. Cause the Word of Christ to dwell richly within us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.